Welcome to Spirit of the Hall, our Teddy Hall podcast series brought to you for Orlarians by Orlarians. My name is Ollie Belcher and I am the president of the St Edmund Hall Alumni Association. I am delighted to bring you conversations with some of Teddy Hall's most fascinating alumni, fellows and staff. Our first episode in Series 2 is with our former principal Justin Gosling, who reflects on his years at Teddy Hall since he joined the college in 1960, having read classics at Wadham College, been a research fellow at St John's and a lecturer at Wadham and Pembroke Colleges. Justin speaks about his experiences as Teddy Hall's senior tutor for PPE and how he became the principal in 1982. And it was a very divisive election because it dragged on and on without there being able to reach a majority for anybody in particular. But anyway, just at that last minute, I did get elected. He reflects on managing the transition from Teddy Hall being an all-male college until 1978, when the college accepted women for the first time. Well, it was, <laughs> it was very fascinating. It seems to me that that first cohorts of women, they were going into a very hostile environment as well as the importance of choosing your subject because you are interested in it, rather than just because you think it will get you a job. Don't bother about whether it's useful for jobs. Just bother about whether it interests you. Because then, A, you'll have an enjoyable time, and B, you're much more likely to do well. Make time for this podcast, as it leaves us all with incredible insights into Teddy Hall over the last 60 years, as well as important changing attitudes throughout that period. Justin, welcome to Spirit of the Hall, and I'm delighted to be talking to you today, as I know you have touched the hearts and minds of many Orlarians over the years. So you first joined Teddy Hall as the tutor in philosophy in 1960. Yep. Can you tell me your journey to become a tutor and what attracted you to Teddy Hall in the first place? Well, to becoming a tutor, it was because when I was an undergraduate, I did greats. When I finished mods, I really wanted to go on doing literature. I couldn't in those days. You didn't have the choice. I had to do philosophy and ancient history. And gradually, I got hooked on philosophy. And the only obvious way of being able to use it was to become an academic. And so I did that. And then I, when I got a research fellowship at St. John's, um, I got given some casual teaching by my ex-tutor, and I really started enjoying that. Uh, and that made me go looking for jobs when my research fellowship came to an end. The job was teaching, and I just got hooked on it by then. When you ask me what attracted me to Teddy Hall, well, the simple crude answer is because there was a job going there. I actually had no knowledge of St. Edmund Hall before applying. I hadn't even been in to it. And my tutor, ex-tutor and one of my referees, said that he didn't know much about it either, but he thought it was rather a quaint, old-fashioned place. That didn't encourage me terribly. But when I walked into the front quad, I could still remember it for interview. I was absolutely bowled over by that front quad. I mean, I had lived in colleges which had rectangular quads and which, for the most part, were built as a unit. And I walked into this quad, which was a complete hodgepodge. Um, it had 
no right angle in it, I suspect. And I, it was, it was that sort of homely, friendly appearance of it. I, I'm somewhat sensitive to my surroundings, and so that made me very determined um, to do my best. And my best was, as it happened, good enough. So that's what I got attracted at the very last minute. Fantastic. I have to say, I think I agree with you. When I walked into that front quad, I was also bowled over by it. Absolutely amazing. So then it was 22 years later, um, you were appointed to be Teddy Hall's principal in 1982. How did this happen? What what was your journey to becoming the principal? Um, (laughs) Well, the the general situation then was that we... uh, we were going to advertise the job, but the vice principal circulated um, a paper around to all the fellows in which you were asked, it was actually a list of all the current fellows, and you were asked to tick anybody whom you would like to see as principal, like to consider as principal. And then you were told how many votes you'd got. And I had got 17. And at that point, I was beginning to feel a bit um, stale on the teaching. I felt I wasn't teaching as enthusiastically as I used to. And I first of all thought, well, this will be a change. And then I thought it would be an interesting change because I wouldn't have to give up teaching altogether. I would just have to do less. And I didn't, frankly, know an awful lot about what it involved. But it was also my predecessor, a rather short and not very happy um, time as principal. I rather liked him, but um, we just simply didn't explain to him what the job that we were expecting from him was. I think now it's changed again. He had thought he'd been at uh, Imperial College and he'd been a professor there and he thought that he could sweep in and... um, changed the way the college operated, what it taught and how. And nobody really revealed to him that that wasn't what was asked, that actually we would like somebody who would chair the various committees and be around the college quite a bit. And once he realized that was what we wanted, he um, said, well, I think I'll move on. And it wasn't an, it was quite an amicable um, separation, I think. And I mean, he was keen to be helpful to the college after he left. Unfortunately, he confused college with university, so most of the things he suggested weren't actually things we could take advantage of. Um, And, but we'd had three years of growing discontent and eventually having to stir up our courage to suggest to him that perhaps he wasn't doing the job we wanted. But as I say, once he realized he was perfectly willing to go, he wasn't making a fuss. And so when I took over, we'd been through three slightly tense years of discontent. And so I thought, well, at least they'll know what they're up against if they 
choose me, and also I shall know what I'm up against if I take it. And I might be able to settle some of the divisions. And it was a very divisive, obviously, even though I wasn't there, um, election, because it dragged on and on without their being able to reach a majority for anybody in particular. It finally, in the last meeting after the summer term, they decided they couldn't stand it any longer, um, I imagine. But anyway, at, just at that last minute, I did get elected. I was just thinking, you said at the beginning of, of, of the answer that they asked only internally first and you got the 17 votes. Did they ever, did they ever put it out um, externally for other people to apply or did it remain an internal? I simply don't know. I mean, they were very discreet about these things. I got told that I had got something. I didn't get told. I think I did get told what the next largest number was, but I, I wouldn't be sure about that. I was going to say, were you pleased when you actually found out you had the job? Yes. I mean, I realised I was in for problems, but um, they were quite st stimulating problems. I mean, I knew there were clearly a lot of people who didn't want me. It must have been a very narrow vote at the end. I had a fairly good idea who those people were. I mean, this is one of my advantages, that I did have a good idea of who didn't like me, uh, as well as some idea of who did like me. So um, I had to work on overcoming the dislike to some extent, or at least trying to convince them that I wasn't as awful as they thought. And that was an interesting <laughs> exercise to try. Do you, do you think you achieved it? Well, that's for other people to say, really. Um, I can only say that the college didn't blow up um, as a result, and we seem to get on all right. Uh, yeah. So I hope I succeed, but uh, you would have to ask other people. I, okay, I, 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 I'm sure, I'm, I imagine you definitely achieved it. And, and Justin, what do you see as your most important role then as the principal? Um, <clears throat> well, I think, roughly speaking, keeping the peace. Some colleges I know, well, actually Teddy Hall wasn't at any time that I experienced, um, I've really divided their parties, and, um, in the sense of political parties, um, who are at war with one another. Well, we weren't like that, I'm glad to say. I think one of the most important things was not to encourage, and certainly not to cause, um, divisions. You had to get this, try to oil the works so that people felt committed to the job, but didn't feel that they had to win a case against another party so that they could claim victory, that sort of atmosphere. I don't think it distracts people from, they're not enjoying their lives uh, in that case, and they're distracted from their teaching, and it's not a, a comfortable atmosphere in which to be operating. So I thought most of my job was to, as I say, oil the wheels and um, hope that people will enjoy the hall. And that um, meant that I had to try to chair meetings so that the, the temperature was kept fairly 
normal. I remember one of the fellows who retired, um, we didn't retire, sorry, he went and took a chair at another university. And at his goodbye party, he said that what he missed in the college, in the governing body, was passion. And I thought, well, thank God. Um, I mean, the last thing I wanted was passion. Um, <laughs> and um, so I felt that made me feel I'd succeeded to some extent. Because colleges can get very unpleasant places to live in. Um, and I've been members of Common Room where you know, some fellows didn't talk to each other. Wow. Uh, and they didn't sit near each other. Uh, and when they were sitting reading their newspaper, they kept it up in front of their face so that they didn't have to bear the sight of this intolerable colleague. Um, <laughs> well, I'm glad to say that was never my experience at, uh, at Teddy Hall. You know, you said at the beginning how you felt maybe your solely tutoring was getting a bit stale. How did you find juggling your, you know, your principalship with, with the teaching? Oh, well, I didn't have to juggle very much. I mean, I, it was my choice how much teaching I did. So um, if I was having crises, uh, I knew that I had a crisis coming up, I could just say I'm not doing any teaching this term. Um, so I didn't have that. And how, how was it then going back to teaching after you were principal? Oh, well, that was great fun. Um, I mean, largely because I only had to do as much as I wanted, and I only had to teach the subjects I wanted. I mean, when I was a tutor, I had to cover a certain range of subjects, really, whether I liked it or not. I couldn't get into the way of sending all the teaching out um, in order to keep up to my requirements. I had to teach things which, in some ways, I'd rather not have taught. I mean, it isn't terribly exciting teaching elementary logic. You have to get through the same sort of things again and again. And I was quite glad to be able to stop doing that. There are other things I really enjoyed teaching. And so I could, I could pick and choose. So that was very nice. So, Justin, since you um, joined Teddy Hall as the tutor in philosophy in 1960, you know, there have been many changes to the college, including the admission of women in 1978. And, you, know, you became principal only four years after this decision. What was it like yeah. managing the transition from being an all-male college to a co-educational one? Well, it was, <laughs> it was very fascinating. When they decided to change their statutes so as to admit women, the JCR was absolutely horrified. And in fact, they passed a vote of no confidence in the governing body. It seems to me that that first cohorts of women uh, ought to receive the VC or something. They were going into a very hostile environment. They were a tiny proportion of the, they were a smallish proportion of the first year, but of course, the proportion of the college, they were absolutely swamped. And they had to learn to adapt to that and face up to quite a lot of hostility. And on the whole, women are slightly smaller than men. So they had a hard time in the bar just getting themselves heard, you know. It wasn't that everybody made way for them. And I'm not, I mean, there obviously were men who were fairly sensible. But um, the general attitude was not, and we were. Actually, as the you know, on the governing body, 
We were somewhat uncertain what to do. Most of us had taught women from other colleges. And of course, most of us were married and so realized that women were reasonable creatures. But a lot of girls was going to be a novelty to us. And it wasn't clear how we were going to be able to fit them in. And we were terribly lucky because we had our first official woman fellow was Anne Taylor. She was very good at talking to people and she was very sensible. And I found her an absolute standby. I mean, I often wasn't sensitive to the sort of things which would be important. And we appointed her as a tutor for women. I don't imagine such a place such a post any longer exists. But I think it was very important at that time because she was someone to whom the women could go and express their difficulties. And of course, she could pass those on to me. And that was useful. But when we were voting on it and um, she wasn't a member of the college, she was somebody who was there, thank heaven, um, when we first had women. And the discussion as to how to go was, it's, I mean, I can't tell you what the r real reasons were for which people voted. Um, there were some reputable arguments on both sides. And then there were some less reputable considerations, which I was fairly sure um, did influence people. I mean, on the reputable side, it, of course, was the monstrous discrimination that a very small number of women could take part in this, what we thought was a superb form of education. And it, it simply wasn't fair. So we ought to open up accessibility to Oxford. And the um, reputable argument on the other side was that uh, what we were doing, if, if all the colleges went co-ed, then nobody would have the choice of belonging to a single-sex college. And some of the women's colleges have felt that. I mean, St. Hilda's held out for quite a time, and some of the men's colleges held out for quite a long time. Memorial um, didn't, was the last college. It had several years of being single-sex. Um, but of course, there were other considerations. I mean, one thing that having women would do would be uh, um, enable us to get rid of that long tail of third-class degrees because women were known to be studious creatures. How long do you think it took for the college to feel like a truly co-educational institution rather than a male college that had recently recently accepted women? Well, you'd have to ask the, the women that, I think. I mean, I can... I think I'm right in saying that when I left, it was still true that um, the women were only about a third of the college. In fact, we got rather worried about it one time. We did a, an investigation uh, because we thought we would spot some subjects which very rarely took women. But actually, the puzzling thing about it was that no subject stood out. I mean, there were years when there were more women physicists or mathematicians. Um, than men, and there was years when there were more men reading English or geography than women. I mean, I say, mentioned those subjects because um, when we became a college, we had suddenly to provide 
a full range of teaching. And so they started appointing him fellows. And they, one of the things they decided, quite sensibly, I think, was to go after subjects which most of the men's colleges didn't take. Obviously, English was a subject which most men's colleges didn't go in for. I mean, I was at, when I was at St. John's, St. John's just had a slightly eccentric English lecturer, no fellows, and modern languages, Queens did modern languages, but a lot of colleges didn't, didn't, didn't they didn't accept students, but they didn't have the same provision of um, teaching. They didn't have lots of fellows. So when I was appointed, there were already three English fellows, three, which was monstrous. Um, and we had a modern language fellow and were thinking of doing a second. Um, we had a geography fellow and were thinking of appointing another. Um, and then we, we had two standard sounds. We had physics and chemistry. But then we tended to go for subjects like engineering or... Um, material sciences and so on, which were subjects which on the whole the standard colleges just didn't bother with. And so we had a, and, and this I think was um, was influential in in our becoming more reputable yeah. on the, on the uh, Norrington table um, because we were the only colleges, the only men's colleges which people could go to. And so, um, and expect to have reasonable provision. So that changed things becoming a college. And of course, we had to appoint more fellows. I was the 13th, and I think my predecessor was the first non foundation fellow. By the mid 60s, we were about 26 fellows. So we'd pretty well doubled from my appointment. And this caused enormous changes. And we did start thinking that perhaps we were more or less like uh, a standard college with perhaps some special, um, what's it called, uh, a unique selling point. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and yes, we had to get to committees. When I was first appointed, as I say, I was the 13th, it was stupid to have committees, um, and we just had governing body meetings. And we had a very strange way of uh, running the college. I mean, we had no agendas for governing body meetings, and we had no minutes for governing body meetings. I was inducted on the Thursday before term, and nobody mentioned when governing body meetings were, I discovered by inviting the senior tutor and his wife on a Wednesday. And he raised his eyes, brows slightly, and said, oh, you're not coming to the governing body. Well, I had never heard about when these were. I assumed that they were probably on a Thursday because that was when I was inducted. And perhaps only occurred twice a term or something. Actually, we met every week and uh, we discussed everything with no agenda and no minutes. 
Um, it was quite interesting, but it was uh, it rather bore out my uh, referee's view that it was a quaint, old-fashioned sort of place. Uh, uh, but when we had 26, we had to uh, change, so we had to go through a large number of changes rather suddenly. Um, when we felt that we were, I suppose, by the mid but all sorts of things about the way we operated were bizarre compared with other colleges. Um, our social life was... And one of my um, favorite memories was that we always had a guest night on a Sunday. I think we had one on Tuesday as well. This is what colleges did, so we did it. And we uh, had to turn up in black tie. This was taking place in the old dining hall. And so we marched up to the high table. And I remember one night, and the Graham Midgley, who was uh, then dean, he was presiding that night. And he realized, as the grapefruit, unsegmented, was put down in front of it, realized we had no spoons. And he just toyed with the idea of pretending it was an old Teddy Hall tradition to lift up your, just to suck your grapefruit. But he chickened out on that. So <laughs> He um, gestured to one of these boys and said, uh, could we have some spoons? He didn't want to draw attention. One of the guests was a, a Regis professor of theology from Christchurch. Uh, we'd been brought in by our chaplain. And he didn't want to draw too much attention. So the boys stomped off down the hall. And he came back a few minutes later and threw a set of spoons and they were tablespoons. It is very difficult, I can tell you, eating a non-segmented grapefruit with a tablespoon. But Graham had chickened out at that point. He, he was going to pretend this was the way we did deal with um, the grapefruits at Teddy Hall. Then, when the main course was served, he noticed that everybody had been served except the chaplain who had brought the Regis professor in. And he thought, I, I simply can't reveal even more about it. So he decided he was going to pretend that very naturally the chaplain fasted on a Sunday. Um, <laughs> so there was nothing untoward about this. And um, John Cowdery, of course, having seen how things had gone, he didn't want to draw more attention, so he uh, stolidly um, fasted. And um, I think things went better after dinner in the common room. But of course, the professor from Christchurch must have been dining out on this for years afterwards. <laughs> yes. uh, but this kind of bizarre thing, and we used to have tea, because all colleges you could have tea brought to your room. And we used to have tea brought to our room. We could have uh, I tried this once, and it was brought to one's room by somebody of the very correct name, Tom Crabb. And he would come up to one's room, and there would be a bit of uh, white bread, if you were lucky, perhaps, or perhaps not lucky, a sandwich, 
but possibly just butter, and a tea brought up in a cracked white cup of the sort that you then met on the British Railway, and it was plonked down. And you were also allowed to have dinner brought to your room. I did try that once, but never twice. Um, and so we were keeping in line with colleges. Well, eventually, I'm glad to say, this was rebelled against. We moved to having tea brought to common room against much opposition from some of the older fellows who felt that we were abandoning traditions. And we did slowly become more civilized, but it was only really when we moved to the Kelly building, the new hall, that we got to behave in fairly civilized ways socially. And all this was interesting to live to, through, um, and quite entertaining as well. And we also, we had changes in, in discipline. I remember Graham Midgley telling me when he was dean, they used to have termly meetings of the deans when they exchanged practices and uh, got hints from one another. And in the mid-60s, people were getting worried about having times at which people should return to college. There was a general system that you were expected to be back in college by 7.30, 8.00. Nine, ten, um, and if you didn't, you have to have found another way of getting into college, or you had to knock on the door and get fined. And they were discussing this and wondering whether it was perhaps a little out of date. And one dean said, "Oh, well, we we've been on seven thirty now for some time." And another dean said, "Seven thirty? Good heavens! Uh, we've moved to eight. And it went on until eventually one dean said, well, we, we let our students stay out till 10 o'clock. And he thought he'd you know, won it. And then a gentle voice from the far end of the table came saying, our girls all have keys. And a frisson of horror apparently went around <laughs> the male deans. And within a term, all the men's colleges um, their students had keys. I mean, they couldn't possibly have done. I mean, they thought that obviously the women's colleges were totally irresponsible, uh, having people wandering around the city all hours of night. But anyway, that's when a definite liberation started coming in. And then, of course, we had the the student sittings and excitement. Um, it was actually an interesting time for teaching. When I first arrived, it was the last bit of people having done national service. And that was an interesting experience because they'd had two years living as adults. They had views of their own. And they also, they knew that they didn't have to bother about the degree they got. So they were prime prepared to take you to task and argue back. And then you had a lot of fresh-faced schoolboys who were, this was really an extension of school. But they too, they didn't have to bother what you said. So they were, they were quite happy to take you to task. And of course, they didn't really need any 
good degree. I mean, having been at Oxford would get them a job somewhere. I think you had to get a first to get into the foreign service, foreign office, and you had to get a second to get into the civil service. But I think people, employers were, quite rightly, not particularly interested in your degree. And they weren't even particularly interested in those days in the class of degree. They realized you had an interesting experience at a reputable university and they didn't bother. Well, when the revolution came, things got much more exciting because they wanted to tell you that actually you were just part of a corrupt establishment backing the upper classes, well, which was partially true. But anyway, they wanted to show that everything you said was nonsense. And so tutorials really became rather exciting. I mean, philosophy was uh, an obvious place, obvious offender in this respect. And um, so you got introduced to people like Althusser and so on, continental philosophers. They didn't care what degree they got because they were spreading a message. And, um, but after that, things really got rather dull, relatively speaking, because insanely, what class of degree you got and, depressingly, what degree you took, there were job-getting degrees, became important in the eyes of students. And um, actually, it wasn't true. I had a person applying to read philosophy and theology. And um, I was the only person in college who was relevant to this. That's what he really wanted to do. But what he had applied to do was PPE. And I was the only PPE college around in college, around in college at the time. And it emerged very quickly that he had no interest whatsoever in any of the subjects of PPE. And so eventually I said to him, look, you, you don't actually seem to be interested either in economics or politics or philosophy. So why are you applying to read PPE? And he said, well, I don't. I really want to read theology. But my parents and school said that wouldn't get any jobs um, and that I'd be much better doing something like PPE or law or science. And so I rang up the, um, the university careers office and I said, can you tell me what the situation is with regard to people reading theology? Do they all go on and become clergymen? Um, or what? And I'd like it compared with PPE. And they came back to me and they said, well, actually, there's hardly any difference. I mean, more clergymen have done theology than have done PPE. But if you look at the theologians, their afterlife, they're otherwise hardly distinguishable from PPE. And so I got this chap to go and do theology at Keeble. Um, they were very willing, um, and we managed to persuade the parents and the school that really PPE was not his future. But this insistence on job-getting has become much more important. Do you know, out of interest, what he, what he went on to do after he did theology at Keeble? Oh, he enjoyed himself with Keeble. He 
<laughs> he wasn't <laughs> interested in me. Um, no, no, but I mean, he didn't, he didn't necessarily go on to become a clergyman. He might have gone and done... Oh, no, he wasn't yes. interested in becoming a clergyman. I think. He was actually interested in theology. Mm. Um, you do better in a subject you're interested in. Absolutely. And um, I came across this also when, when I was principal. I suddenly discovered when I was principal, I had a lot of old friends who had been at Wadham with me who had become schoolmasters and were now heads. And they were scraping the barrel for someone to um, talk on their prize-giving day or something. Um, but, you know, I, I surely remembered these old times. Anyway, I said one of them, well, what on earth am I to talk about? He said, oh, well, you can talk about anything you like. And so I thought, right. And um, so what I talked about was uh, how if they were going to go to university, first of all, they should go to a university, research the university, go to one which actually taught the subjects that they were interested in. And secondly, they should look for the subject that they're interested in. Don't bother about whether it's useful for jobs. Just bother about whether it interests you. Because then, A, you'll have an enjoyable time, and B, you're much more likely to do well. Mm. The first thing that happened was that the uh, headmaster and various teachers came up to me and said, I, ah, I wish that had been said last year, because, you know, the parents are just interested in what will get their children a job. And then one of the parents came up to me and said, ah, I wish that had been said to the masters earlier because all the pressure from the school is that the your children have to go and degree that'll get them a job. And then one of the boys came up, this was a boys' school, and said, well, you know, with the pressure from the school and the parents, you really hardly have a choice. Uh, you've got to choose one or other of a narrow selection of subjects. Well, I don't know whether that did any good at all, but it was quite an eye-opener. Um, I'd suspected mm. it. But there were children being bothered, um, pressured into taking subjects they didn't want to do. So, so I imagine, fact, I imagine, in, I imagine in your case, um, when you were picking your students for philosophy, you chose people who you really believed loved reading philosophy rather than for any other reason. Well, I largely taught PPE, and since in my day they had to do all three subjects, and it was their only way in that time of their doing economics or doing politics. Um, a lot of them thought that they would have to grit their teeth and do philosophy. Uh, I can't say, I, I did get one or two who for some reason had got enthusiastic about philosophy. Now, they were all a bit cagey of them because it meant that they had a school teacher who was keen on philosophy and they had a tendency to want to get their pupils to follow a line. So I tended to be faced with people who knew that utilitarianism was right or knew that something was right. And actually the job of getting them to think about that, to 
see whether there weren't criticisms was really quite hard. Um, so I preferred having people who had not done any philosophy at school. I liked people who perhaps had done sort of one of those end of year um, think classes where you just, some teacher took a group and they were all very varied and um, they discussed current affairs or anything else they liked. And um, that tended to be a sort of class which stimulated people to think rather than get them into a certain mold. Mm. Um, but philosophy was in PPE. The general line with the results was that the best results were in politics, next best were in um, economics, and the bottom of the list was philosophy. Um, and this was understandable. I mean, it's a very strange subject. It's a subject which, on the whole, they won't have done at school. Um, most people can manage to some extent in politics. I mean, even if they're poor, they can they can do something which is not failing. But philosophy is the big hurdle. And of course, nowadays, philosophy is a thing that, that they only take if they're frightfully bored with something else. Um, so if they can't stand economics, well, perhaps philosophy would be better. And it isn't entirely true. Some people are, are actually interested. In it. But it's a, it's a minority interest. Sure. And I think one can understand that. And, and so I mean, you, you, you continued um, teaching PPE until 2015. Do, do, you yeah. miss, do you miss it now? Uh, yes, I do, actually. I mean, I had to give it up because uh, my eyes are no longer up to it. And I felt I ought to be able to keep up with the sort of things that were currently interesting in what I was teaching. And as I couldn't do it, um, it wasn't fair. Um, so I was sad to give it up. But there we are. And, and do you keep up with any of your students or former students? <laughs> um, yes, some of them. I mean, not a lot of them. Yes, yeah, so how, how do you um, then spend your time now that you have retired? <laughs> <laughs> Enjoying myself. Um, well, I, I keep up with um, a number of ex-colleagues in various ways. Um, I belong to one or two poetry forums and I have a, a number of friends locally whom I keep up with who are fairly interesting. I determined when I retired that I was going to retire. Um, that's to say I only do things that I wanted to do. Um, a lot of people think they want to stay partly in the university or something. Um, doing, I was offered one of these um, unimportant posts where you were expected to give, attend a few dinners a year and give a speech. Um, but I decided I was going really to be retired and I wasn't going to fill up my time with some other job so that I could tell everybody I was busy. Um, I would just do what I enjoyed. And I enjoyed teaching, so I kept that up. It was, I think, teaching is the most important thing that I did, whether for 
good or ill, I'm not to judge. But I think um, it's much more important that people be good teachers than that they be good principals or whatever. I mean, you, you get a bit of sort of pseudo-kudos from being a principal. Um, but I think your influence on people is far less than, um, than as a tutor. Mm. And of course, absolutely. as a tutor, it can be absolutely murderous because at Oxford, when you're taught, in some subjects you're taught either in pairs or occasionally singletons, it's very, very important that, that and people don't often recognize it, I think. It is hell for a student to be, for a whole term, sitting with a tutor whom they can't bear. Now, the tutors don't often realize that they're unbearable. Um, <laughs> not a natural line of thought. But, of course, a, a student who's been through that for a term has, in effect, lost a term's tuition. That's something one has to, to recognize. And I, one of the things that I did want to do as principal was to get students to think that they could discuss problems about tuition. And eventually when I was teaching, I always used to tell people, I don't know, I mean, occasionally they did take it up, but um, that it, they had a right to know why they were being taught in the way that they were. And they couldn't expect to get on with all tutors. So if they had problems about tuition, they should come and say it. And I was fortunate in teaching a subject where there were three tutors. I said, if you feel shy about telling me, you can tell one of the others, and they will think of a, a tactless way of telling me. Um, <laughs> and I mean, sometimes, I think on the whole, people don't believe you probably if you say that. Um, but I did have one or two. Sometimes it was very useful. I mean, I had one student who was very, very clever. And um, they said at the end of the tutorial, whenever I go out of the tutorial, I feel this high, pushing their hand down towards the floor. And um, well, I asked them to stay behind and discuss it. And of course, in fact, they were very bright, and I, um, insensitively, hadn't thought what was going to seem like to them. I was too interested in the views they were expressing, and I was, was therefore wanting to uh, to argue them. But um, at any rate, I was able to convince them that actually the way they were being treated was a compliment, not showing contempt. And and after that, they uh, of course took it differently. But one doesn't always think as one's going through the subject, one gets interested in what's being said, forgets about the person to whom it's being said. But I imagine there was much more feedback, which I didn't get. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So, so Justin, you mentioned through this podcast that you were an undergrad at Wadham. Um, you had your yeah. research fellowship at, at St. John's, and I also understand you were lectured in Pembroke. Would you say that the spirit or culture of Teddy Hall is different from those other colleges you've been associated with? Um, it's different. Uh, I'm, some of the colleges that I've been members of common room with, I want to discuss. Um, the big difference which 
struck me about previous columns I've been aware of. St. John's was extremely formal. No one ever used my first name in the whole time I was there. I did hear one fellow once addressing another by first name, and I just assumed that they must have been on holiday together, and this was a slip. But it was an extremely friendly college, and it was what convinced me that formality does not mean unfriendliness. Um, and I really enjoyed my time there and was made to feel very welcome and at ease. One of the things which struck me when I came to Teddy Hall was that first names were used straight away. And, and actually, this causes problems because it's no use sending a note to Harry because Harry doesn't have a pigeonhole. Only Irving has a pigeonhole and he happens to have a first name of Harry. And I had problems. I, I mean, it was all very friendly, there's no doubt about that. But I did have problems um, discovering who was who, because on all the lists of fellows and so forth, the surname and the subject would be important, but not the first name. But it was, um, that was a real culture shift for me. But they were all, as at St. John's, very friendly. And in fact, there were so few fellows then that there was a general habit of new fellows being invited out to a meal by previous fellows. I mean, I think there was one exception where there was somebody who was terribly, terribly shy and um, it was inconceivable. But one did get invited out and this was really very nice because you, you then got relaxed conversations about nothing in particular in a, a home environment. Um, I, it can't possibly take place now, I think. I mean, it had already stopped happening when we reached 26 fellows. It becomes too much. But, but that was very marked. And as we were a small number of fellows, actually common room after dinner was we got used to having conversations with one another. And um, they were often on general topics. Uh, but you also got to know something about what other people doing other subjects, what they thought and how they thought about their subjects. And actually, undergraduates were quite often, at least teaching and so forth, was quite often a topic of conversation. And um, that, of course, has changed. When you've got just 13, well, you didn't usually have a full complement. So when you've got sort of uh, eight or nine people, you're all within shouting distance of each other. And um, you just had to get used to talking to each other. And that was really, very, really making real what I think is probably the theoretical theory behind colleges, that um, you learn to cross-fertilize with other subjects. Mm. You aren't always meeting your own subject, which is a very notable difference between that and a lot of other universities where you largely rub shoulders with your own faculty. Whereas I was the only philosopher in college, so I rarely rubbed shoulders with my own faculty. So you, you, you've obviously been at Teddy Hall since 1960. 
um, so you've had all these experiences you've you've spoken about today. If you could guarantee one thing about Teddy Hall that would never change, we talk, we've, well, we've spoken a lot about change, but that would never change, what would that be? Nothing. Nothing. Um, no, I mean, it's quite impossible because Teddy Hall changes in part because the university changes. I mean, an enormous change, which has started, to, was just starting at the end of my time, was the shift between the powers of colleges and the powers of the university. Um, I mean, now, for instance, there are, well, many subjects, you now get a degree in economics. Um, so the tutors in economics can't possibly teach in college all the subjects in economics. When it was PPE, you could reckon on the students being taught at any everything but the special subjects in college and possibly more. But now there is such a range of subjects in economics. And I think if I'm right, or maybe wrong, but it's certainly true in some subjects, there isn't a, a fixed compulsory papers. The compulsion is to take one or other of a certain group of subjects. So you couldn't expect a, uh, a college having, say, two fellows to cover, to guarantee to be teaching anybody in their college during their time. Mm. And that's changed it. And of course, increasingly, there will be simple university appointees whose main job is as a university lecturer. And there, the influence on appointments is much more with the university than the college. And I think uh, as this progresses, as it's, it may be that the university does much more of covering the teaching in subjects through university classes. And all this would change the college. And uh, the nightmare, in my old-fashioned mind, is that the colleges become just uh, high-class halls of residence. Mm. So maybe that would be the thing, thing you wouldn't want to change? That would be a thing I wouldn't want to change, but a, not, not a thing which I think will never change. Absolutely. So, so Justin, I've really, I've just absolutely loved hearing all your memories, you know, your, your incredible insights into everything today. But before you go, can I ask you to leave us with three favourite places of yours, one in Teddy Hall itself, one maybe in Oxford, and one in the world beyond Oxford? Well, it's... <laughs> I find that very difficult. I suppose, if I'm to choose, the old library, partly because that was where, when I came, um, governing body meetings... And that was our common room, and it was my introduction to the college, and I suppose that would go as place, I suppose. I find it very difficult because, uh, I mean, what I like is just the college. I mean, the whole set of buildings. That's, that's great. So you just love it as a, as a place, as a, as a whole, a whole place. Yeah. yeah. And what about Oxford? Do you have any, any, any parts of Oxford that you particularly love? Not particularly. I just have very different favourite memories of different places. And I don't think I could, it's a strange thing to say, but my tutor's room in Wadham is one of my favourite memories because I had the most stimulating periods of my undergraduate life there. Fantastic. And, and 
and the world it's beyond not. Oxford? No, I can't give a place to that. Um, there are too many. Too many, I mean, too many. There are places associated with family at various times of my life, but um, I don't think I can. I suppose, well, perhaps the one that meant most to me is uh, is the house we lived in in Abingdon for a long years. Um, that's where our family was brought up. Wonderful. Mm. Justin, thank you so much for your time today. It's been it's just been absolutely wonderful to to hear hear your journey through Teddy Hall. So thank you so much. You're very welcome. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Principal Justin Gosling and all his recollections as both the senior tutor for PPE and as principal. I keep thinking about how he was bowled over when he arrived at Teddy Hall and saw the front quad, as I think we all probably were. Our next episode will be with Maggie Carver, one of the first women at Teddy Hall who threw herself into everything, whether sport, music, the Oxford Union and her social life on top of reading biochemistry. Earlier this year, Maggie was awarded a CBE for her contributions to sport and the media sector. Subscribe now on Spotify, Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for listening.